you're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub, with me, Richard Martin, an assistant professor at the London School of Economics and an associate of the Human Rights Hub. In today's episode, we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. Streeter from the University of Michigan to talk to us about the seemingly intractable issue of police brutality and race in the United States. The killing of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minnesota in 2020 sparked a fresh series of protests in the US, indeed around the world, on racism against black people. In the US, the conversation has focused on police brutality against African Americans and other ethnic minority groups and is now accompanied by a new call to defund the police. In this context, police profiling, bias, lack of accountability, raise questions about how to address the over-policing and under-protection of communities, as well as the regulation of issues of force and the potential of human rights norms to address concerning aspects of police culture and the deployment of police resources, and perhaps most fundamentally, what legitimate role the police ought to play in society in the first place. This episode is part of a four-part series in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The Oxford Human Rights Hub is an anti-racist organisation and we are committed to continuously working to better allies uh, to our black brothers and sisters protesting for the realisation of their basic rights. The struggle for racial equality has been the unforgiving work of generations. The heavy mantle of justice yet to be served has been carried across centuries by the defiant peoples uh, whose only demand is a recognition of their basic humanity. We can all do better and we can all do something in our small corners of the world to support this imperative. Our uh, speaker and discussant today is is, uh, Dr. Shea uh, Streeter. Dr. Streeter is a president's postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan. Her research examines how race and gender shape the ways that people experience, perceive and respond to incidents of violence. Her current body of work Uh, explores the racial politics of police violence in the United States, applying a comparative politics framework. This research has to produce several new discoveries regarding the differences and similarities in the circumstances of police killings among blacks and whites, the ways that personal racial identity defines perceptions of police violence, and a large racial gap in the rate of protests following police killings. Welcome, Dr. Studer. It is a, a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, you've been studying the racial politics of police violence in the US uh, and what a context in which uh, to be doing so uh, just, just at the moment. Um, but this is, of course, a, a long-standing phenomenon, which we'll come to. Uh, but perhaps you can begin by giving us a brief introduction to what is happening in the US right now, uh, just some months after George Floyd's death, but also on the eve of a new presidency uh, and in the midst of a global pandemic. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here and speaking. And um, yeah, I, it, is a, it is a really remarkable time to be doing this sort of work. Yeah, so the history, there's a long, long history of mistreatment of African-Americans by the police in, in the United States. Um, some have traced the history of the modern police back to slave patrols to keep slaves, um, African-American slaves from running away. And there have been protests against police brutality in the Black community dating at least as far back as 1919. 
Um, so this has been over 100 years of well-documented coverage of these, these sorts of protests against police brutality. My research specifically tends to look at incidents where people have been actually killed by police and understanding when, when and why people protest or demonstrate in response to those killings. So to give some context, the United States kills about over 1,100 people per year, thereabouts, on average about three people per day. And African-Americans make up 25% of those who are killed. But Blacks are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than whites, given their share of the population. And there's been recent studies that, that have shown that a Black man has a one in 1,000 chance of being killed by police in his lifetime. And for young men between the ages of 20 and 35, police killings are the sixth leading cause of death. And so in that context, these deaths are really leading the movement. Um, they're really sparking the movement towards police accountability, the movement in response to police brutality, and the, really the anti-racist movement in America has really been continually sparked again and again by these incidents of police brutality. Those are some, some desperate alarming statistics. And you're mentioning um, how the, the process that, that, that these these high-profile killings spark, but but by the sounds of it, these these are really just the, the tip of the iceberg, and, and are moments that capture much deeper concerns um, and much deeper uh, experiences of these communities. When you see these protests uh, this year, but also obviously that the Black Lives Matter movement itself can be tracked back to to seven years ago, following the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the the fatal shooting of African American teenager Trayvon Martin. Um, when, when you see these these periods of, of protest over the last seven years, are these cause for, for optimism that, that things will finally change? Or is this actually um, a sign of a lack of change, a sign that the, these protests aren't garnering um, the, the institutional response and reforms that are needed? No, I think that this is a huge sign of optimism. Um, I think one of the, the biggest barriers in many ways is just acknowledging that this is actually happening, acknowledging that there is a problem of race in this country, which, um, you know, after President Barack Obama was elected, there was much discussion in the United States that we had moved past racism, that we were a post-racial society. And I think that these protests and has, have really done a great job of shattering that illusion um, because it was an illusion, very much so. But I think that also in terms of policing, there has, there's a real trust inherent in the American people that the police act appropriately, that they, that they do things that if they, you know, if they kill somebody, that it is, it must have been deserved. And I think that that belief is very deep and very strong. And so that the fact that these, that the, these protests, I think are challenging that. And as they've been continuing to grow, it, it seems that pe many more people are coming to realize the reality of the problems that we have in our policing system, as well as the, problems, the serious problems that we have with racism in our country. And so I think that the continued movement is a huge source of optimism. As far as changes and reforms, I, I do think that that has been very slow in coming, but I do think that, you know, you really need that 
opinion change, that shift in perspective to be able to make those difficult demands for legislative change. That, that's that's fascinating and this this idea of of um the movement itself i mean have, have you um in your research have you have you noticed uh, any changes in the core messages of the, the 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 black lives matter movement since its birth following um trayvon morton's death uh, and then obviously further protests um following the death of michael brown and eric garner i mean have you seen changes in in that message in the core demands um but also the composition of that movement or do you think it's been pretty pretty united and, and pretty consistent in the last over the last seven years given that these issues remain as you say um largely um unaddressed uh, in institutional terms i think the movement has definitely developed definitely matured i mean it you know in 2013 you know this rallying cry of black lives matter it was born out of grief and pain over, you know, the killing of Trayvon Martin, the murder of Trayvon Martin. This movement has really, was sparked from grief. And so it has developed over time and kind of trying to articulate what the vision is for black lives. What are the things that are threatening black life that are keeping black lives from flourishing? And I think at the very at the very minimum, it has been widely recognized that state agents, the police, are disproportionately killing Black lives. That that in and of itself is kind of where we sort of seen the line drawn of saying like this is this is the vanguard of this is where this is really where we're going to take the biggest stand. But the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter, which I must kind of I I, I want to clarify for your listeners that. While there is an organization, certainly, that is called Black Lives Matter that has its own website, Black Lives Matter is more of a coalition and almost like a rallying cry that many different organizations, local organizations, um, statewide municipal organizations are, are, are working under that banner. I was recently asked um, by a fellow researcher to kind of give give them some understanding of what were the demands of Black Lives Matter over the summer. And I explained, well, every single city had its own demands. And so I, I copied links to a number of different municipalities where the demands of organizers who were, again, protesting under the banner of Black Lives Matter were, were tailored to their local environment, to their local district attorney, to the past killings that have happened in their, in their environment, to the situation regarding COVID in their own their own circumstances so 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 yeah so the, the the movement has evolved greatly over time in terms of encompassing more and more activists more and more actors and and it's consequently the demands have also evolved as it's expanded to more and more localities yeah i mean i, th- I think that that's that's an that's an excellent point that that certainly as somebody that's coming from the uk um we can often forget just how how large and how diverse policing is in America in terms of the the federal s- system and and the the, the 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 different state policies and and, and the the legacies within states um, and African American communities. Just to, to continue on the theme of of, of protests and, and your 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 research expertise, I mean we we've certainly seen in in the media it's been reported that. Um, or the political spin on some of these these protests during the summer is that the, these protests themselves were a danger to society. Um, 
that in the context of the pandemic, it was almost selfish in some ways to be trying to 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 bring to bear uh, cohesion and, 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 a, and a common um, community approach on the streets to, to, as a rally cry against this. I mean, do you have any reflections on how the the um, reporting of these protests uh, has been done and and the the idea that this kind of expression in assembly is actually somehow in, inappropriate. Well, we have this saying about the press in the United States that is, if it bleeds, it leads. So the idea that if there's if there's some danger, if there is some violence, or there's something happening that is you know like very highly controversial, that that is what will bring viewers to see it. So. I do think that part of the framing and part of the coverage of these protests over the summer was very much in that spirit. Um, you know, there was a really great report um, from the ACLED, the, the ACLED data group, where they collect information generally on international conflicts, but they collected information on every protest they could find over the summer between May and August of 2020 related to police brutality and racial justice. And so they found that there were nearly 8,000 protests over those three months in the United States, which many have argued now that this was the biggest protest wave in U.S. history. One of the things that they found is that I believe, I can't remember exact number, it was either 95 or 96 percent of those 8,000 protests were completely peaceful. At the same time, though, you would not have guessed that, I think, based on the news coverage of showing showing looting, showing, you know, trash cans or buildings burning. Um, there was a very much a focus on the violence that was happening. Um, something that um, also came up, as you mentioned, was the risks due to COVID. There's been some, some great, uh, I think, research recently that has shown that, um, that there was not an increase of COVID due to the protest. There, were, there was a, a wave, which now compared to the wave we have now, seems like a, a little just a hill, but um, it was a wave of COVID during the summer um, in the United States, but it was due to, you know, socialization and, you know, parties and Fourth of July parties and things like that, rather than these protests. So protesters were outside, vast majority wearing masks. Um, so there was little transmission, it's understood, that happened during these protests. But again, kind of the, the the understanding of like if it bleeds it leads the focus on those dangers can eclipse the true danger that the police posed to the black community the true danger that the police posed to the protesters during these incidents um there was most much of the violence that happened was really directed from the police to the protesters to journalists in many cases so um so yeah i think that the framing is understandable in the sense that they want people to watch. I think that that's how I would frame the the media coverage. I think about these about these protests. I wonder. We we talked a bit about the variation in in policing across the states, um, and obviously the protests have, have taken on different forms, and 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 COVID itself has has taken on different forms in different states at different times. But have you seen any common themes in the police response to these protests? Uh, either an engagement with communities or, or lack thereof? Yes. Um, what I tend to see, there's kind of three options that I tend to see. One is, 
immediate repression of the protest. I mean, um, you know, violence towards protesters, not allowing them to gather legally arbitrary arrests and detentions, shooting rubber bullets at them, tear gas. The option that I tend to see most in my research, because again, I look particularly at which police killings lead to protests. So in most of the, most of the situations, the protests stay lo- remain local. So if somebody was killed in um, Louisville, Kentucky, for example, which is where Breonna Taylor was killed, um, most of the time the protests stay within Louisville, which makes sense because most of the time in pretty much every circumstance, the police are controlled locally. The district attorney who would decide whether or not to file charges is local. So the, those, those protests tend to stay local. And what I tend to see the majority in the vast majority of cases the police generally ignore the protests um so there's either violent repression there's ignoring and then something that we saw quite a bit over the summer although um that changed over i think over the course of the summer was a a signaling of some, some solidarity from the police department so sometimes we would see images of police officers kneeling with protesters, um, kind of commemorating, you know, acknowledging the, the issues. But um, we have to remember, though, that the police themselves are political actors. Um, police chiefs, particularly, are some of the some of the the most uh, competent political actors I have ever come across. Despite the fact that they are not actually elected officials, um, so one so an incident comes to mind. And granted, this is not to say that the police are completely disingenuous when they do these acts. But I um, I recall the police department in Buffalo, New York, kneeling with protesters. And then I believe it was less than two days later in the same exact spot, officers officers at that point were in riot gear and violently pushed an elderly man to the ground where he began bleeding out of his ears. You know, even after these officers who pushed this elderly man were were suspended, the entire task force that was there resigned or stepped down in solidarity with those officers who had pushed this man. And the entire police union sided with them and they were um, kind of hailed as, as not heroes, but kind of, yeah, consci- almost like conscientious objectors in a sense um, by the by the local law enforcement. So I think that judging police more by their actions. And in most cases, their actions are to either violently repress or to ignore these sorts of demonstrations. I mean, if we if we develop this a bit further and, and from and protests outwards, to what extent do you, do you think we need to ask more profound questions about, about um, power in society and, and wider socioeconomic disadvantage and the police role in maintaining that um, as well as specific reforms. So, for example, in in the the, the in the federal level, we had the consent decrees that 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 the Obama administration was was pushing very hard around um, recruitment and and um, changing accountability measures, and and certainly a more representative police force is also is is often put forward. Um, I mean, when when you see these these measures around reform, whether it's through representation or accountability. Um, and, and from your political side's background, I mean, do you think that these kinds of reforms can ever can can really do much to change um, police community relations, um, or are structural issues always going to be to be playing heavily on on trust 
I think again, it has. We have to understand um, the police as political actors and these institutions as you know working for their own interests. Um, something I like to to question when I when I speak to people in the United States is to is to question like who controls the police. It's not clear. Um, in fact, what I argue, argue is that the police control the police. In the United States, um, you know, the police are pretty much completely insulated from any sort of civilian democratic, you know, de- I always have to specify democratic with a small d in the United States context, um, democratic, you know, control. You know, at the at the most, um, the mayor or city council can, you know, appoint or remove a police chief, but I've spoken to many police chiefs and they feel that they often have very little control of what they can do for their own organizations due to um, the regulations that are put forward by the police unions. Um, And so it's really the police determining their own agendas and their own goals. And so I think that it's um, in some ways, I, I understand the impetus to want to increase the diversity of the police in order to try to address the problems of racism and racial bias. However, there is very little, you know, you're, you're still putting people who are marginalized, you know, people who are marginalized by their identities, you know, you're putting black and brown police officers into this force where they are, they're still marginalized and their ability to kind of change the political culture within those departments is very, it's very limited. I think the I think the best example of this is one of the officers who was part of George Floyd's killing. So he was, but he he's a bi he was a biracial officer. Um, so he um, and he wanted he wanted to join the police force after Philando Castile was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department in 2016. So Philando Castile's death also led to nationwide protest and as well as international protest during the summer of 2016. And so he wanted to join the police force, but his um, he had some adopted siblings who were African-American, um, fully, fully black, and as well in some friends. And they were appalled by the fact that he would want to join the police force because um, he said he wanted to be the change. He, you know, he knows the black community. He wanted to be the change. And some of them cut him out of his life because they were that upset about him wanting to join the police. But he was, he was saying like, I need to be a good cop. Like, you know, the reason why the, you know, these officers did this was because there wasn't a good cop there to stop them. Well, he himself was put in that position when uh, Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And in that situation, he did not become that good cop he said he was going to be. He held, helped hold him to hold George Floyd down. And so I think he, you know, he's, he's literally the good cop that we, in this, in this world and this idea of like, oh, we just need better cops. We need better, you know, more diverse cops. He literally is the prime example of like the ideal scenario. And yet when he was put in that position, he acted again with his institution, he acted in the interests of his fellow police. And so I think that that, I think that there's no better example of the limits of the kind of approach. As you point out, we need to think about these issues in context, which draws attention to what is required of the police more broadly. What do you think are the most pressing issues? And indeed, what kinds of reforms might address these? 
so with regards to the structural issues, I think that that's really where um, I am the most, I guess, excited in terms of trying to shake things about people's ideas about what they think is possible. I mean, we have such issues in this country with um, economic inequality, with health disparities, with educational disparities, all of these things. And um, so when I think about, so I've been thinking quite a bit about, um, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and at the base level, you know, you have the physiological needs, you know, water, food, shelter, clothing. And at that even just basic level, the United States has been failing miserably. And I think that it has become even more apparent because of the pandemic. Like we really truly have almost no social safety net. Um, as we speak, you know, millions of, you know, families since this pandemic have become homeless or because they've been evicted from their homes because they have not been able to, um, you know, pay their rent and they have no other form of shelter. And, you know, there are continuous barriers put even to getting food through food stamps. And so at the basic level, people aren't getting their physiological needs met. Um, I think that the next highest level for those that higher needs is, is safety needs, which is really the one place we, we've been only partially addressing. So most of the social spending um, for that comes with the police has been, or when it comes to social spending, has been on safety in terms of police. So we spend very little money on providing people with food and shelter, but the police make up inordinate amounts of city budget. So in almost every city or small town, the police expenses are the biggest single line item. So in Chicago, police take up 40% of the city budget. That's $1.8 billion in 2020. And that includes, just to clarify, that includes $153 million that will set, were set aside just in anticipation of legal settlements for police abuse cases. So they, they, so this is basically the price that Chicago is willing to pay to maintain the status quo of keeping the police the way they are, of understanding that they will brutalize people and there will be legal payments and we're just going to set aside, you know, regularly set aside, you know, this is $153 million just for settlements to victims. And LAPD sets aside, you know, over 53% of their general fund towards the police. So all pretty much all of the, the budgets of cities and states are going towards the police. We're very little towards addressing these other needs. So a lot of these, a lot of the biggest social societal issues that we that we're facing are are just not being met, and so the police are being deployed to really address everything. When they are de they are deployed to the sheriff's departments are deployed to enforce evictions. They're the ones who are called when people have mental health issues. They're the ones who are called when there are you know understandable disputes. Um, among family members who are dealing with these stresses, who are dealing with just trying to survive and going into that, what I think of as like the survival mode, that kind of fight, flight, or freeze response um, can bring out, you know, you know, the worst in people. But instead of, instead of dealing with those, trying to keep people from ever having to go into that survival mode, we've pretty much just been focused on trying to remove them from society if they do. I mean, in that in that context, that that leads us nicely to, to, to what it might mean to defund the police. We've talked about the, these these huge police budgets and, and relative terms, huge with other um, state and, and and state expenditure. 
I mean, what do you think in that context, in the context of the, the Black Lives Matter movement? We've, we've heard this rally cry to defund the police. How would you d- describe to our, to our international listeners what it means to defund the police in, in, in America in 2020? Yeah, so it, I will say that it can mean very different things depending on the local context. But at a baseline level, it would mean, like, for for example, in a city like Chicago, of taking their $1.8 billion budget for 2020 and removing some of the, those dollars, maybe even half of the, that money, and spending it towards the other basic needs of people in in that society. So housing, education, food, mental health treatment, substance abuse, a livable wage. So it's basically trying to, rather than purely addressing security from this very narrow policing security sort of standpoint of addressing the broader needs of people in society, redirecting those funds um, to, to really address the basic needs that people have that might lead them you know, with the idea that, and I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made that if many people had these needs addressed, they probably wouldn't need to call the police, or the police wouldn't need to be involved in the first place. An imaginative, an, an innovative proposal that was put in in the, the big police reforms that happened after the, the Northern Irish conflict was this idea of um, uh, talking about policing rather than police, and that the policing was something that, that should involve the community and, and could involved the community and, and one idea when it came to funding was to um, mandate that a certain percentage of every pound spent on policing a percentage of that was also spent on community initiatives and projects um, is that something I mean I mean looking at the the, the federal system in the US is, is that something in terms of these funding decisions that could be put through, uh, could be driven through the federal projects or, or consent decrees, or or is this issue of defunding the police and, and, and radically rethinking how resources are spent and what the target of those resources are, is that likely to come down to local politics and, and be determined state by state, or is this something that you could see coming more centrally and, and, and trying to change across the country? Most of the time, these sorts of things were going to happen, not just even at the state level, at the municipality level, so at city-specific city levels. Um, so sh- Chicago City Council determines the budget for Chicago police. Um, but there are still things that could be done at a state legislative level to kind of try to, I think, even more than defunding the police is really to bring the police under democratic civilian control. So kind of structuring how the police um, departments are, are set up so that civilians have a role in just even at the basic level of setting the agenda of what the police are going to be focused on, where they're going to be focused on, what are the tactics that are available to them, those sorts of things that civilians currently have absolutely no control over. Um, so there's, there's things that can be done at the municipality level, which I think is where most of the activism is happening. Um, I think that there definitely should be more focus, um, in the United States on the state legislatures because they have a whole lot of control. At the federal level, there is still something that can be done in terms of changing the incentives, although it's much, much harder. Um, so many of the police departments in states get funding for the police from the federal government. Um, and there, there is... Just, there's been discussion about the possibility of, you know, kind of linking, 
the, the criteria of those funds based on um, certain reforms that departments have to make. For example, withholding funds unless the police departments disclose how many police they kill each year, which they are not legally required to do now. And so just for, for your listeners who are, are not familiar with the United States system, we actually do not know how many police, people police kill each year. We have estimates because many people have started crowdsourcing this information based on media reports. But there are no official numbers because police are not required in any way to disclose this. And many times they don't. And so there's, you know, things you could do with at the federal level of holding, for example, making making funding um, contingent on this. However, if you're wanting to defund the police, federal funding towards police may not be what you want at all. So this might this route might be kind of completely off the table for many activists who are wanting to defund or dismantle the police. Um, so, so there are options, but it, it kind of depends on, you know, what you're trying, how, how radical you want to get in terms of the changes that you want to make to the police. Many of, many of our um, listeners will be um, drawn from the, the, the legal community um, and, and will be interested in, in rights-based claims and the potential of law to change policing for the better. In the U.S., uh, there is the, the likes of the high-profile um, stop and frisk um, case Floyd and uh, versus the city of New York back in 2013. That that, that was a, an example of legal action uh, being brought to bear to show systemic practices in this case around what constituted reasonable suspicion um, when it came to stop and frisk um, and how disproportionate um, that that was and, and brought the hard evidence before the court. From from your research, do you think that we 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 are right to be looking to constitutional rights and the courts to to bring about greater awareness and and change? I think we should be. I mean, I think we should be trying every means necessary, and I think the legal aspect is is definitely one of those things on the table. Um, I think what's again something to to consider in the United States system is again the role of politics. Um, so judges, federal judges, who are, are usually the ones who are hearing these cases about police abuse, about um, you know about police practices, are generally appointed by the president. Um, so, for example, I mean, I study cases where you know families who are people who have been killed are bring bringing lawsuits, um, civil suits. Um, you know, wrong against the police department or the city. And most of the time, you know, there, there are 94 district judges in the United States who are appointed by the police. We know, interestingly, there's been, I think, I've been trying to find research on this, and there's been very little work done to, like, really investigate, you know, how these judges are making decisions. But anecdotally, from civil, human rights, civil rights lawyers here in the United States, very interesting to learn about the differences, regional differences, in these judges and how they are overhearing cases. So in New York, for example, the district judges there are going to be more sympathetic towards, um, you know, suits against the police and more, possibly more sympathetic towards human rights. Where there's other regions of the U.S. where I truly do not see these cases being brought forward, and I talk to lawyers there, and you know, they say they have to be very strategic about how they bring these cases because. Judges are simply not sympathetic. So they have to, there's a, a burden of proof that is in some regions of the United States of a burden of proof of not only 
wrongful death or disparities based on race or, or practices that are discriminatory, but a, and like an additional level of like corruption almost that needs to be shown of in um, malice almost that needs to be shown in order to win these cases in certain regions. And, um, you know, in the case of when people are actually trying to sue the, sue the police departments for police brutality or wrongful death, um, another really banal thing that can really change radically how things work out is the level of insurance that these cities have. So, for example, in Chicago, Chicago is such a huge city that they just pay this pay out these um, these lawsuits from their their general fund. And as I mentioned, they've you know for 2020 they set aside 150 million dollars in anticipation of these lawsuits. Whereas um, I talked to lawyers in in uh, the city of Nashville, Tennessee, where they have an insurance policy that would cover these um, these sorts of lawsuits, but the insurance payout is so low that most lawyers won't even take the time to to, to you know take these cases because it's not worth their time and money because there's there's going to be very little that comes from it, and so I think that well, there's a lot that can be done from the legal aspect, but understanding the incentives of lawyers also and the incentives of judges and is, is an important part of, of this. And I mean, that, that's, that's um, in some respects, disheartening to hear, but, 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 but the frank reality of, 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 of things. Um, I mean, the, the other aspect of the, of the, the, the legal response to this um, Certainly in, in the European context, we have Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights that protects the right to life. Something that, that as an outsider um, certainly strikes me is, is, is the, what seems in some cases to be a de facto immunity from prosecution for police officers that have killed. And I mean, the, the, the recent case of Breonna Taylor, the totally tragic case um, in which a charge was brought, but in the context, it was I think it was a narcotics charge um, rather than anything else for, for that uh, officer. So I mean, c- can you give us a little bit of the context um, fr- from your own research and expertise around the legal response um, in, in terms of the criminal law and, 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 and actual um, uh, criminal liability for officers where, where they, they kill in, in the course of their duty? Yeah, it's 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 definitely more of the wild west around here. Yeah, we we really don't have the that sort of the sort of strong protections for the right to life, human right to you know to live, and also the this the procedures in place for um, when the when officers do kill people. So the, basically, officers are given a level of right to self defense that no other civilian is ever given. So basically officers, um, as long as they, they felt that they had any reason to fear for their life in practice, it is legal for them to, to basically kill anyone. And that reason can be shown to be completely unfounded after the fact, but as long as they can argue at any level that in that moment, they felt that they had some reason to fear for their life. Um, they are, de facto legally allowed to kill virtually anyone. Um, again, I think it's, in terms of the criminal aspect of these things, this is, again, where politics comes into play. So in most cases, um, when a 
police officer kills somebody. Um, it is the district attorney. So we have, you know, attorneys that are, the district attorney usually is the attorney for like a county. They're off, it's really the, an office, a prosecutor's office, although there's a head district attorney who decides whether or not to bring charges against any anyone um, for any sort of crime. And so they're the ones who will just decide whether or not to even consider bringing charges against a police officer. But it's important to consider that in most in every other situation, these district attorneys are working hand in hand with law enforcement to bring charges against civilians. And so the idea that they would turn suddenly kind of take a stance against the police that they work day in, day out with to bring these charges, um, many have argued that that's a huge conflict of interest. In, in the Brianna Taylor's case, there was so much scrutiny on this case that there was an acknowledgement that the district attorney would not be the appropriate person to, to adjudicate this. So they went to the, the state attorney, an African-American man who was the state attorney for Kentucky, and he was the one who considered whether or not to file charges. Again, legally, all this officer had to say was that they had reason to fear for their life. And in this case, they could, they could pretty successfully argue that in the sense that Brianna Taylor's boyfriend at the time... Um, he did have a weapon because he, he, he had a legally owned firearm. He was not aware that the police were the ones who were barging in this house. So he fired, you know, he had the, he had the right to self-defense. Um, and uh, so they, they, they could definitely argue and kind of convincing in that, that case that they had some reason to fear for their life. And so that, that is fundamentally why he was not charged. But again, <laughs> politics plays a role. This, um, state attorney general um, was also being considered for the Supreme Court nomination that now um, Amy Cohen Barrett has. But, you know, the the entire eyes of the nation and also his future career were at stake in determining, you know, in his decisions. Do you see potential for a focus on, on, on reform rooted in civil and political rights and protections being being a, a part of, of future initiatives? Um, to reform police in the U.S., or do you think that that, that that's uh, either come and gone, or, or or is a side issue in these 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 more systemic calls for for defunding, um, or or even uh, some kind of version of abolitionism in some respect that that, that um, we're sending in the wrong people into these communities in the first place? Yeah. So what's I think what's really interesting is that you know despite the fact that you know for decades the united states was very much you know a promoter of human rights in other countries there really has never been a real development of human rights discourse within the united states outside of those elite sort of circles um so yeah human rights isn't isn't something that really comes into popular american discourse um very often and and surprisingly not even as much when it comes to the police, which I think is a big opportunity to kind of, you know, bring that disc- bring that discourse, bring those um, that into the conversation. One one frustration, one thing that I see that many activists get frustrated, and many community members get frustrated with that idea of, oh, we just we need to develop a, a better legal code for protecting rights and have those rights enshrined, you know, deeper into local state and federal constitutions is the idea that well we have a lot of rights now that the police just completely ignore 
And oftentimes, you know, I hear anecdotes that people say that if you ever try to assert your rights with the police of saying, well, I have the, you know, trying to explain that if you, even if you know the law and express your knowledge of the law, that will only bring you more trouble. That they will, that's when the police often turn violent in these interactions because they're being called out for um, their lack of respect for these rights. Um, I think one of the, the, biggest opportunities to really go from our, to use a rights perspective when it comes to policing is actually when it comes to um, the rights of protesters. Because I think when it comes to protest policing, there is a lot of opportunity to discuss the, the rights of protesters. I, I, I wanna emphasize for international audiences, there is very, very little tolerance towards protest in the United States. Um, so I mean, I'm currently in Mexico City, where there's frequently demonstrations right outside my, you know, my apartment, their protesters will, will camp out in the middle of the main street in the heart of Mexico City in the main plaza. And there's a there's a level, you know, you can, there's huge issues with policing and human rights in, in Mexico, huge issues. But there is a there's a general tolerance towards protest, which would truly not ex- truly just does not exist in the United States. Um, protesters have to pay permits to the police in order to protest against the police, um, and if you don't pay those permits, you will be subject to far more force. And even if you do pay those permits, like they they usually specify, you can protest from this time of day to this you know, from, from, you know, noon to 6 p.m. And if you go outside that, that is when they deploy extreme force to clear you out because you, now you have gone beyond your permit and your rights are based, have basically dissolved. The, the, the rights pretty much only exist within that permit. For, for the, it's, it's, it's in some ways, it's kind of like a, a mob racket in a sense of paying them for protection to be able to speak out against them. I, I think that is where we can have the most headway in terms of, you know, human rights, um, sort of develop, codifying human rights is really with regards to protest. In the spirit of, of looking for silver linings in these difficult times, is, is, there, is there a key finding from your research that, that gives you cause for, for hope or, or optimism um, in, in police community relations uh, with African-American communities in, in contemporary America? Hmm. Where I find the most hope is the fact that these communities, which are really truly the most marginalized communities in the United States, are the ones who are carrying this entire movement on their backs. They have the level of capacity, the depth of um, organizing knowledge, and just the stamina to do so. And so I think that, I mean... (laughs) When you ha- yeah, when you have black women leading a movement, anything is possible. Um, and and so from that standpoint, I have I have full faith that you know that people will, th- that this movement will continue and that it will um, survive. You know, on, on the on the flip side, I think something that really I think isn't hasn't been taken quite as seriously in the United States context is really the level of commitment that the majority of Americans, the majority of white Americans, have to the police and to the police use of force. Um, there's been a number of survey work that has shown that you know 
the white majority strongly supports aggressive police uh, tactics. They, and also even, I think what I, what I see in my research of when, you know, when whites are killed by police, just a high level of support that continue for that continues within their communities, even under really dubious circumstances where people are unarmed and shot in the back, for example, just the high level of support that there is sometimes even among the family members of those who've been killed. Um, so experiencing, so some folks like to think that, you know, this is purely a matter of racial bias of like they're against black people or think that this is purely a matter of, oh, they haven't experienced it before because they're white. And so they don't understand how it is. But I think my, you know, what I've found in my research is that even those who experience it have such a high level of support that we really need to take seriously the fact that this is this is really a, something fundamental in how people are seeing the world and the ideologies that they have about how the world should work and who deserves what from the state at the baseline level these are this is really rooted in fear of either fear of acknowledging that the police can be violent because then you live in a state where you have violent police but also the fear um, of each other. And so when people hear about defunding the police, when they think about, you know, rolling back any of the police um, rights, you know, the, the leeway that they have, I think people are really afraid of well, who will protect me, who will save me. Um, and I think that that is something that cannot be just dismissed and trying to, trying to work with people trying to find, find ways where people feel that they can trust each other, not just trust the police, but trust each other. And so I think that understanding that fear and addressing that fear is, I think, the, the way forward, the way of bringing people into understanding that, you know, that we can we can control the police, we can restrain the police, we can maybe even defund or abolish the police um, if we're able to manage our fear and to learn to trust each other. That's a that's a very powerful observation, and I think gives us a lot to think about. Um, and, and not just asking um, questions of, of of policymakers and 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 lawyers and, and political strategists, but actually, as you suggest, um, questions about ourselves and how we relate to and and engage with um, our fellow citizens. So thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Shea uh, Streeter of the University of um, Michigan for, for sharing such, such rich um, and thought-provoking insights on um, this episode of the Black Lives Matter series. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. The executive producer is Kira Alman. The episode was co-produced by Monica Arango Olea, edited by Christy Calloway Gale, and was hosted by me, Richard Martin. Music for the series is by Rosemary Alman. Show notes for this episode have been written by Sarah Doby. Thanks to our production team members, Sandra Fredman, Megan Campbell, Gary Pillay, Natasha Holcroft-Ems, for their valuable feedback in putting this episode together. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast.